Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously... Then we are the natural selection. On today's show... The badgers have a moment of philosophical awakening that they never thought possible. The ocean is the cauldron within which all experiments take place. (laughs) Nature's weird corner with Roddy Shaw. So we need a very horny animal. Finally, something we can get our teeth into. (laughs) They slime with the good times. They slime with the bad times. There's no easy way into this. Right. I just have to hit you with the four words that brought me here. I'm ready. Colonial squirt shared anus. (laughs) 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 Sorry, for a second... I thought you said colonial squirt shared anus. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I must have misheard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to need some context. Yeah, we're just going to look at some really weird biologies. <laughs> let's do it. So without further ado, mm. let's go. Let's do it. I'm strapped in. We are, of course, starting in the sea. Yeah, I knew immediately we were going to be in the sea. Exactly. Starting off with... The squirts. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, we're such children. Right, okay. Okay. So, tunicates? Right, yeah. Tunicates? Tunicates. Tunicates. T-U-N-I-C-A-T-E. Tunicates are a group of marine invertebrate animals, um, of which there are around 3,000 species. Now, you would look at these, and they are one of the oceans wibbly squibblies (laughs) and you would not think anything of it but they are in fact part of the phylum chordata because they are the earliest thing in the evolutionary fossil record which shows dorsal nerval cords so they're so chordata being uh, like backbony there is there are the vertebrates yeah sorry yeah which have well vertebra backbones but the chordates are ones which have a spinal column right and the evidence of that yeah as i basically understand and that's something that that you would look at and uh, to look at they fall into a similar i don't know what that is but coral sponge that sort of vibe isn't it you you would look at them and think yeah just a it's not it's not an animal a, a blur yeah yeah <laughs> they're very much one of the oceans blur yeah. one of its many <laughs> exactly one of its just sentient fluff yeah. kind of things yeah. you know so i've i've written the line here even though they look like fairly nondescript blobs <laughs> but they are closer related to hagfish and all subsequent chordates because mm. you know sharks and rays don't have bones but they are uh, yes chordates than to the likes of other wibbly squibblies of the sea mm-hmm. like starfish coral etc right but you wouldn't guess that looking at them and they get this grouping with us and all the rest is because whilst in their adult form they are a wibbly squibbly of the sea mm. in their larval stage they look kind of like a tadpole so oh. when they first hatch, they have a motile form. So they move around and then just sit in one place. They swim around, find a spot, and grow wow. into their sessile state. I'm like, I think you've got the raw end of the deal 
if you're an animal that as a kid moves around and then like fastens to one spot you know caterpillar spends all its time on one plant or one bunch of plants becomes an adult great i'm becoming an adult leveling up i got wings i can fly around yeah little cordate has all the independence it could want yeah. as a kid <laughs> and then just gets tied down to one spot i mean we arguably go you know butterflies don't get a mortgage <laughs> <laughs> we do that to ourselves <laughs> yeah okay good point well made all right um but what do these look like i've said wibbly squibbly and all the rest but in their absolute simplest terms imagine a rugby ball if you're listening with two holes not necessarily at either end of the ball but kind of one at the top and one maybe two like a third of the way down if a rugby ball was a clock kind of one at 12 and one at two say and these are the tunicates siphons now the buckle siphon is basically the mouth that sucks in the water and then it goes into a digestive system where it filters out all the bits it needs and then they get pumped out through the atrial siphon which for the purposes of plain English, is the arse. Okay? (laughs) Now, it comes in uh, through the buckle, out through the atrial, and they get their name, one of their common names, they have many, is sea squirt, because when these get taken out of the water, they basically squeeze both siphons and they pump out all the water which is in them. So they do a big squirt of everything they've got inside. Yeah. Some of them are solitary individuals, and one of the largest just to give you a sense of the scale we can be talking about, is the stalked sea tulip, Pyura pachydermatina, which can grow to be over a metre tall. Oh, a metre tall? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, like... So do they stand on their end? Yeah. Or they lay flat? I sort of thought they laid flat. They stick to the... They adhere to the kind of thing. But if, if if you're rugby balling it, it's not laying on its long surface, it's sort of spiked into the ground. If they can be a metre tall. I, the, the, yeah, yes, yes. But I don't want to say conclusively mm. because if biology does anything, it's that there's going to be something that does it the other way. Yeah, okay. So, but I think for the most part, the diagrams I was seeing had them rugby ball pointy end down. Yeah, got you. Kind of standing up like that. But if there's a sideways one, there's a sideways one. So some of them are solitary, single individuals that can be very big. Mm. But some of them are colonial organisms that replicate by budding. And so similar to basically yeast in a sense, you've just got one and then another one just like a cell buds off that and another one grows off that and another one grows off that and another one grows off that. And these colonies occur in all shapes and sizes and they can be absolutely tiny individual ones of millimetres up to kind of centimetres inside where each individual organism is known as a zooid and they all integrate. And in the simplest form, they are pretty individual animals. Uh, you know, zooids are yeah. still individual set of yeah. inside bits, basically. But some of the advanced colonies take us all the way back to that opening four words, colonial squirt. <laughs> Shared anus. <laughs> right. Where they bud and they bud and they bud and they bud. But they stay stuck together. At the arse. Wow. <laughs> Great. 
So each one has its own buckle siphon, but all of these come together on the inside pipes and comes out at the end. Damn. Yep. Are they all sharing the same nutrients? That I guess they would just become part of. It's 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 giving me not quite the same, but it's giving me uh, when we did the Man of War vibes, mm. where you've got like different things combining to make a functional organism. Because there, that was like a siphonophore, and I think they were different zooids that made up, and you build it together, and it becomes a, a functioning organism. Or are they more? Are they more a definite species than that? Like you know, they're much more a definite because the Portuguese man of war is like a, it's like a sort of minotaur type yeah. thing where yeah. it's like a cow up here and a man over there and yeah. a bit of this here. Whereas this is all, yeah. If your Portuguese man of war yeah. is your Greek mythical part cow, part this, part this, yeah. this is just many cow. Right. Okay. <laughs> There we go. How many geese explained? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> now, like I said, I've got a couple mad facts. Great. Starting with Colonial Squirt Shared Anus. Yeah. And just before we move on to the next one, because these are, you know, people think, oh, weird things in the sea. And there are many weird things in the sea. But that doesn't mean they're not without, you know, sometimes they are some of the more biochemically interesting things. And so... There are compounds made by some species of sea squirts which are of big interest pharmaceutically with just one such compound from just one such species. Remember, there's over 3,000 species of um, sea squirt tunicates. Uh, One compound in one species exhibits anti-tumor, antiviral, and immunosuppressant activities. It shows promise in shrinking tumors in pancreatic, stomach, bladder, and prostate cancers. And another compound inhibits the human protein EEF1A, which I'm sure we all know. Um, Basically, what this means, that protein interacts with coronavirus proteins. Whoa. And so it's being investigated for its antiviral activity against COVID. Wow. No, and they they always talk about, we should stop destroying the rainforest, we should stop, you know, destroying this, that, this, that, because we don't know what. Yeah. We There are so many things, so many species out there that we don't even know. If you're looking at the diversity of life on Earth from a purely selfish human perspective. Yeah, leave it be. Yeah, there are <laughs> so, like, that's a, a sea squirt just lying at the bottom of the sea, sucking in water and putting it out through its shared anus yeah <laughs> has could, could, has got anti-cancer anti-covid anti oh it's amazing yeah. i know i literally started this i i was again the the infamous goose note on each phone and i had the words written to myself google colonial squirt shared anus <laughs> i don't know how i <laughs> how that came but it was there so i was like okay let, um, all right past me i'll google it blah blah ha 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 they all you know shared anus and then I saw exactly. By the way, this also can cure everything. <laughs> yeah, all if, known diseases. Yeah, it's <laughs> like oh my god. Yeah, right, cool. Next one. We're sticking in the ocean. We're sticking in the deep ocean. Mm. Next on the list, we're checking in on the hagfish. Mm. Now, after sea squirts, we are much more firmly in the realm of that's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've left the wibbly squibblies yeah. and we've entered form. Yes. Yeah. And for anyone trying to picture this at home, if you don't know, imagine an eel, but get rid of its jaws. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, they are one of the weirdest things, though, in nature. But not only are they weird in just why would that be there, (laughs) (laughs) but they produce, they've got one of the greatest tricks up their sleeve. Do you know what this is? The thing I know about hagfish is the slime. They slime. And boy, do they slime. Boy, do they slime. They slime when stressed. (laughs) They slime when attacked. They slime with the good times. They slime with the bad times. Now, similar, if you remember, to Slow Loris Venom many episodes ago, Mm. their slime trick is a kind of two-part cocktail Oh. So they don't just immediately from themselves put out slime. But what's going on? So a hagfish, like 50-odd centimetres long, like I said, eel-looking thing, right down the bottom of the sea. And along their side, they have over 100 slime glands. And it is magical, magical stuff. What it translates to is that less than a teaspoon of what they put out from their glands on reacting with the water... Uh turns into a volume of slime 10,000 times more. So they're putting out something really concentrated, and then as soon as it mixes with the water, boom. So the article I read and the researcher quoted Douglas Fudge of Chapman University, who has really looked into this stuff, essentially sums it up. He has described it as being unlike anything else in nature. It's made of a mixture of mucus and protein threads, and basically the threads are bunched up incredibly, like hypercoiled inside their cells, mm. inside the glands. And when the hagfish decide it's slime time, the cells burst and the protein uncoils incredibly fast. Wow. The protein threads are, each one is one one hundredth the width of a human hair, but about four to six inches long. And within the cells in how they are boxed no one's entirely sure how the hagfish are basically able to fit the amount of protein in the cell and it's all hard to get your head around because it's kind of tiny 3d molecule stuff but the feet is akin to stuffing a kilometer of christmas lights into a shoebox without a single knot or tangle wow it's proper protein magic in fitting this all in here what they do is when the cell bursts and it's slime time, the un- they unravel incredibly fast. So one's coming out of one gland, one's coming out of another. They hit each other, they crisscross, and they basically turn very quickly into a net. And all the protein threads tangle, and that catches some mucus, and then the mucus catches the water. So the slime isn't really slime. It's more a net. And a protein net with that has trapped the water. And so scientists are like, this is both there and not there. Because <laughs> Schrodinger slime. Yeah, what's giving it is volume is not it. Yeah. It's just trapping other stuff ah. that gives it its volume. Descriptions on touching it are you can't get it feels like it's not there until you try to apparently move your hand. Like if you put your hand in a bucket of slime... You wouldn't really feel the slime, but when you went to lift your hand, the whole bucket had come with you. Right. Okay. <laughs> so it's apparently really, really weird stuff. And to create a liter of slime, a hagfish has to just release 40 milligrams of dry protein. Wow. And that's enough to trap a liter of mucusy, watery, magic y slime. 
So why do they need the slime? Why indeed? So it is part... They've got a couple other tricks up their sleeve and all the tricks come together in the hagfish's survival package. Mm. So they have videoed, for example, sharks going to eat hagfish and then immediately, like, the slime just exploding out of their gills. Like, they can make this so fast when they just turn it on and release it. Like I said, you've then got 10,000 times the amount of stuff. And if it's all going into their gills, does it stop them breathing? Does it affect them breathing? And they cough the hagfish up and spit them out. Wow. But they then had to kind of take a bit back and think to themselves, hang on, the hagfish is already in them. It's already been bitten by the time it starts making the slime. Yeah. So what's happening there? So an honourable mention to the hagfish's skin. Now, hagfish skin is barely connected to their internal body and is so loose on them that you could inject a hagfish with 40% more hagfish and it still wouldn't yet begin to stretch their skin. What? So, what, so it's just like all loose? Yeah, it's connected to their internal body in incredibly few points, and it's basically forty percent bigger than them than they. So, what? your hagfish is you have a liter of hagfish. Yeah, the skin on a liter of hagfish is one point four liters worth of hagfish. Right, you could fill it up with more <laughs> hagfish. Yeah, and not yet. So, the moment anything tries to bite them or tries to get them, they're basically just able to move their. You just get loose clothing. It's the equivalent of biting loose clothing. So the shark bites the loose clothing. It doesn't get any of the original hagfish. The hagfish goes slime time. Boom. Fills the shark up with slime and the hagfish just goes off on its way. What? Yeah. And a final honourable mention to the hagfish's other insane gift, which is that uh, sticking with their skin, they can just absorb nutrients straight through it. They are essentially a living gut because they can just sit in the body of a... These live at the bottom of the ocean and they strip whale carcasses of their meat when dead whales float down. But a hagfish can just sit in the carcass of a whale and as it breaks down around it and becomes a rotting soup, they will just absorb the nutrients straight through their skin. To the point that hagfish are better at absorbing nutrients through their skin than they are through their own intestines. <laughs> oh, wow. Don't they have... Don't they have mouths, though, don't they? They don't have jaws. Okay, but they don't have jaws. But they do have... I thought they had mouths. They they have a mouth. Yeah. They have a mouth, but they don't have a jaw. So it's just a kind of, like, whole scrapey wow, thing. Okay. If it, Kind of like a, a... Lampreys have almost basically gone backwards because they sort of went... I think, I can't remember how hagfish fit in, if they evolved jaws and then lost them, or if they're also at the base of things. But hagfish, are they're very, very early, but they're definitely before jawed fish. Mm. And they just have a kind of scrapey thing. So they just scrape chunks of meat off and then get right. it in through the mouth hole. But they can also just sit in the body of a corpse as it rots around them and absorb it straight through them. <laughs> That's mad. And so, final stop point on just our touch base of three bonkers things happening out there in the world yep platypus of course of course great animal yep don't have stomachs what yeah no yeah but all of the animals that look like have been bolted on to make a platypus all have stomachs (laughs) (laughs) how did they miss that bit out yeah yeah what do they do their esophagus goes straight to the intestines 
Really? Yep. So they're just doing the digestion in the intestines. They have. So going into this a bit more, I didn't realise on at least 18 separate occasions, vertebrates have lost their stomachs. <laughs> They've just been like, nah, don't need that. What? Which, which, which ones? Do you know which ones? Platypus and a lot of fish. Ah, classic. But uh, classic, yes, because the ocean is no, the, the, yeah. the, you know. That's why I meant, yeah. The, the, the cauldron within which all experiments take place. <laughs> Nature's great beaker. <laughs> um, but the stomach is defined by its acid production. Okay. And in the evolution of the stomach, the acid helped with the digestion of larger molecules in that it broke down the molecules and boosted the enzyme performance of the enzymes breaking down the molecules. Right. And like I said, it's not just the platypus. There are many vertebrate fish that have also done it. However, different to some other organs which may have been lost, for example, cave fish who have lost their eyes, the genes for eyes still exist in cave fish, and you can apparently breed cave fish from different caves to get the eyes back. Oh, wow. But in the case of the animals which have lost their stomachs, all the genes have gone as well. They've just gone, they've got rid of it. Like fire sale yeah, on the stomach. Exactly, exactly. So what they think is going on here is it's unclear exactly, but the thought is that diet could be connected through a couple different pieces of speculation. So we know that there's a link between an animal's diet and the enzymes it produces to handle the different proteins that it will encounter yeah. in its food, right? So we know that like crocodilians, big snakes, their stomach acid can digest everything because their diet is eating everything, yeah. right? So they have to be able to go through the lot. And like I said, we know that the protein reacting enzymes work best in acidic environments. And these environments take a lot of energy to make. Yeah. Considering all of the above, you want it acidic for the proteins to break down and for the enzymes to work. And you look at platypus and the fish which have lost their acidity, they eat high quantities of shellfish and corals, all of which contain lots of calcium carbonate. And so the thought is that basically neutralizes your stomach acid. So if your diet neutralizes the acid oh. itself... Their diet contains a huge amount of Gaviscon. <laughs> That's basically what's going on here. So there's no point in having it. Is that there's no point in acidifying your diet if all the shells you take in is going to neutralize the acid? Yeah, so, because the so, pro yeah. So evolution's just gone. This is a completely functionless yeah. thing that we are yeah. maintaining with energy. We don't need an acid-filled stomach because it's just not working. Yep. Oh, exactly that. Interesting. Now, again, though, that all being the case, the platypus still has to outweird everything else. Oh, because, like I said, 18 times this has happened. Uh, they've all lost the sequence to make this gastric proton pump, which acidifies their stomach because the platypus and the fish uh, eating shellfish neutralizes the whole thing. Um, all I could find, though, is that the platypus apparently has actually kept some of these genes and enzymes. But no one knows why, because it's using them for something which is a non-digestive purpose. So even though it's got rid of the stomach completely, it's still holding on to one enzyme, but no one can work out what it's doing with that enzyme. <laughs> but we know it's not doing digestion with it. <laughs> and that is just a check-in on three mad bits of biology. Yeah, nature's weird corner yep. with Roddy Short. Yeah, <laughs> platypi don't have their stomachs. Hagfish slime is one of the maddest things in nature. And the four words that will get you to the end of the week, colonial squirt, shared anus. <laughs>
the bird a bit's back. Yeah, it's my favourite segment, just pure bird. So for those who missed last week, we are delighted to announce that we've got a new sponsor for the show, the app Birda, B-I-R-D-A, which is a social birdwatching app. Do we need a name for this segment? I've brainstormed some ideas. Okay. We're Birda off together. Birda the devil you know. Harder, <laughs> Birda, faster, stronger. <laughs> or how about better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. <laughs> Let's let's move on. I think uh, yeah. none of those. <laughs> Keep working on it. Bring back some more next week. <laughs> but Birda is a bird watching app that gets you outside, gets you looking at birds, gets you looking at birds and meeting people through the app who can help you identify birds if mm. you see a bird which you're not too sure what it is, instead of just having to message Jack, as <laughs> I definitely don't do. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I've been looking at it and it, and it's fantastic to see, especially now, as we record, this spring is arriving and I've been looking at local sites around where I live and it's cool to see like what species people are seeing, especially as we're getting, you know, lots of birds sort of coming back into the UK as spring is arriving. Exactly. Um, there are challenges in there, you know, how many uh, birds can you see in your area in a month over the year and you can build up your life list which is fantastic to start competing with friends you know getting your birds making sure that you're seeing more than them obviously you know jack is quite a bit further down that line <laughs> than i am but we'll get there yeah. we'll get there and so this week bird of the week bird of the week is the now this is a bird yeah this is a bird which i've seen mm. uh so it's in the uk i've seen handful of times i remember the first time i saw one i did get like genuinely quite excited because i'd heard of them and it's a dipper yeah which is quite a not obscure but it's not an eagle yeah yeah you know and it's not yeah exactly not massive not imp- not talons and claws and swooping out of the sky just in fact actually when i was looking this up i the description i found of dippers on their Yes, we do use Wikipedia from time to time. <laughs> uh, on their Wikipedia page was, Dippers are small, chunky, stout, short-tailed, short-winged, strong-legged birds. <laughs> and I just felt that that, yeah. maybe a few too many. <laughs> <laughs> stout, short. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. they are, they're, they're so like little spherical. Yeah, they're really uh, just like a little boil. It's like a Christmas pudding that lives next to a stream. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they live in upland streams and where I'm from in Derbyshire we've got you know the Peak District and there's loads of dippers up there so whenever I go walking up there seeing the dippers on the rivers is an absolute highlight so I see yeah pretty much every time I go to the Peak District you'll see a dipper yeah I've seen the one I saw was in Scotland mm. which was lovely what I didn't realise so like we said these are Christmas pudding shaped sized character birds um, that live <laughs> next to streams and their name comes from they will stand on a rock and do a little a little bounce, a little it's up, almost down. like a little squat, isn't it? Yeah, but just like, but they just bob up and down, and nobody really knows why they do it. But what they do do with that stream is that's where they're they're hunting, they're getting their food. They are the only passerine bird which can swim and dive. Yeah, which is very cool. Yeah, because most passerines, I've got to say, <laughs> lacking. <laughs> yeah. So so pass, passerines are basically uh, that's what we officially call that in ornithology. That's like the perching birds but just think about them as songbirds that's sort yeah. of your family of songbirds your typical birds yeah. and it's about half of all birds i think are passerines yeah it's a lot of them and only the dipper yeah is swimming the so. only aquatic songbird yeah in the world and there are three or four different species i think around the world if you're in america you've got the american dipper but yeah they 
just dive down and they're feeding on invertebrates and things like that that they're picking up from the rocks at the bottom of fast-flowing streams. Exactly. And to get with that, to get with that, to handle that, they are, they've kind of re-evolved solid bones, which is very cool. That's really cool. That's really cool. And that's just because birds have hollow bones to enable them to fly, but the dipper has got solid bones to basically weigh it down and help it dive into the water. Yep. And like Jack has said, he's seen his in the Peak District. I saw mine up in Scotland. But with Birda, one of the great things is the app itself can let you know where people have been spotting dippers. And most recently, there's been a number seen in Yarrow Valley, which is near Preston, Manchester, Liverpool area. And it's quite amazing to think that between two of the major, major cities Mm. of the country, you know, you do get these urban... Uh, you know these spots which are fantastic for wildlife so you don't have to trek all the way to scotland or up the peak yeah trek. they they live in um they live in inner city sheffield i've seen them there Do they? i've seen them in sheffield uh there's certain parts of bristol uh, uh, bristol you can find them as well but yeah they that all they need is a fast flowing stream and that's what a dipper wants and they're off and it's happy yeah, yeah. <laughs> right check it out It's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now, today's animal has been submitted by a few people, Tracy's Trees, Gary MCR and Angela's Vale on Instagram, and it is the badger. Let's get to know our foe. Now, there are actually 16 species of living animals today that have the name badger, with most of them being in the mustelid family. The species that we're going to choose is, of course the European badger, the one that we here are most familiar with. Hailing from, well, Europe and pretty much all of it, apart from the very north, they're mainly woodland creatures, but will also live in farmland, scrub, mountainous areas, uh, and it has adapted well to live in urban areas too. They're powerfully built animals, only about 25 centimetres high uh, and about 90 centimetres in body length, with a stocky grey body and that famous pointed black and white striking striped face. They're strong animals built for shifting large amounts of earth and dig a collection of burrows, tunnels and chambers to live in called sets. In these, they live in groups called clans, often made up of six adults, but sometimes as many as 23. Now, the weight of them can be quite variable, being on average around 10 kilos in the spring, but can get up to 19 kilos in the autumn when they're fattening up for the winter. The heaviest boar, that's the males, was 27.2 kilos when it was weighed. They eat pretty much anything. They're highly adaptable, and although earthworms are their favourite food, they will also eat large insects, carrion, fruit, small mammals, bee and wasp nests, fungi, tubers, amphibians, reptiles, birds, eggs and chicks, anything they'll come across, basically. Now let's talk about their weapons strong muscles and big claws used for digging they're not an animal you want to back into a corner they've prominent canine teeth and powerful jaws strong enough to crush most bones a provoked badger was once reported as biting down on a man's wrist so severely that his hand had to be amputated and this is something that might be useful when thinking about how to fight them although their sense of smell is acute their eyesight is monochromatic as has been shown by their lack of reaction to red lanterns. So they can only see in black and white, and only moving objects seem to attract their attention. And their hearing is also no better than that of humans. So, some little tidbits there that might be useful in your oncoming fight, as I ask Roddy Shaw how many badgers are too many badgers. Can I... You said their lack of attention to red lanterns. Lack of reaction to red lanterns. Attention, reaction, whatever, but like... What does that mean? 
I've never heard any other animal be ranked on its relationship with red lanterns. That's a very good point, actually. <laughs> what possible uh, study <laughs> was that? You've never gone, you know, and here's a lemur which really loves red lanterns. <laughs> so, for reasons no one is sure about, <laughs> someone out there has worked out... They can't see red. ...how badgers feel about red lanterns. We don't know because they can't see them. They, to them, it's just black or white. But they'd see... They'd see a, a shape. Yeah. But they have no idea whether it's red or not. It could be red, green, yellow. We don't yeah. know how they feel about red ones. So, so so, what was that? Like, green, blue, and purple, we know they absolutely love. <laughs> but red lanterns, we are still unclear. And until we know how badgers feel <laughs> about red lanterns, science will not rest. <laughs> to them, they don't even know. You know, a lantern's just a lantern. It's either a black lantern or a white lantern. But, like, no animal has a philosophical opinion on a lantern. I'd say every other animal in the world, yeah. bar humans, accepts that a lantern simply is. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's only human. It's. But, I'd go but, so far as to say it's only the two of us <laughs> right now. <laughs> of eight billion people on planet. Who, who have ever tried to understand... What is a red lantern? <laughs> that all being said, we're obviously folding it in. So yeah. the natural conclusion is I'm fighting them at Chinese New Year. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, I haven't even said the word of the animal I think I'm fighting yet. <laughs> I'm just fixing everything on red lanterns and the presence thereof. And the highest concentration I can think of of red lanterns yeah. is Chinatown at Chinese New Year. Yeah. Right. Now I'm going to say the word badger. <laughs> okay. Um, I've never seen a badger. Have you not? Alive. No. Mm. I've only ever seen them, sadly, on the side of the road. Mm. Um, I've never seen a live badger. I went to the British Wildlife Centre, which is a very... To anyone listening in the UK, it is a very, very cool place because we do go to... You know, you go to a zoo and there's lions and there's this and there's that. But, I mean, really, really... You know, huge swathes of the population have probably never seen a weed. I mean, I'm saying yeah. I've never seen a badger, right? Like the stuff on our doorstep. Anyway, um, and they have, I don't know if it's ever, anyway, they had badgers, but uh, I went during coronavirus times and all the indoor exhibits were kind of shut off and the badgers were in their kind of like indoor set sleeping, so never got to see them. Mm. But 27 kilos is big. Yeah, so that's, that's the, a unit. The heaviest, the heaviest male ever recorded is 27.2. Uh, and it very much depends on when you're going to fight them. If you fight them in the spring, average of 10 kilos. Fight them in the autumn, it's 19, potentially up to 27. Well, I'm fighting them at Chinese New Year, which is Jan February. Okay. Or it's lunar, but yeah. it's, I think, tail end, tail end of January to kind of end of February or something. So we're talking, we're talking proper there. winter. Yeah, so um, are they going to be what? Well, they're going to have... Badgers can be active right throughout the year, um, especially in you know areas where it doesn't get that cold. If it gets really really cold nights, they just won't bother coming out at all and they'll live off their fat reserves, but they are quite active. Um, so they maybe have used up quite a lot of their fat reserves by that point, just before the spring. Okay. so they Depends could... on how hard the winter's been. Depends whether you're fighting them in you know, Norway or 
Oh, no, I'm fine. Spain. Chinatown in Covent Garden. Oh, Chinatown in Covent Garden. Yeah. Okay, I see. So like, they, the <laughs> most red... La- I can't express how much this entire segment is being built on red lanterns now. <laughs> okay, Chinatown in New Year. Yeah. Uh, I think they've probably been out and about a little bit. They... Would they... They... they Omnivores, wouldn't they? There's mm. a lot of bins. There's a lot... So they're probably in reasonable... Yeah, I've seen them living in Bristol uh, and a set just in like a, t- almost like a roundabout style turning. Uh, and you just look over a wall and there was just badger sets everywhere, just on this junction of a road. Oh, wow. It was amazing. And and, and this person uh, that we went to see uh, had them coming in, into their garden and they would just use, just like the foxes, they would just roam around the gardens. So, yeah, I was I did not know how urban they were until I went to Bristol and saw them. Oh, wow. So they've, maybe they've gone to see a West End show then yeah. and they've come out. <laughs> they've just seen Magic Mike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they've come out. And what was the... Hearings about the same. Hearings about the same as humans, yeah. Only moving objects attract their attention. It's a very sort of... It's, lot, it's an energetic time, Chinese New Year in yeah. Chinatown. So, um, yeah, so they're, they're seeing all of that. Uh, very Obviously, a very good sense of smell, which is what they mainly uh, operate with. Hmm. 27 kids. I'm, I'm really... I'm fixated on how chunky these kind <sighs> of, like, inner-city, urban, beefy badgers might be yeah. at that point of take in away. the year. A lot of takeaway. Um, if the badgers mm-hmm. which come for me mm-hmm. are not interested in considering red lanterns, yeah. If they are just all about we're going for him, yeah. I'm going to be honest. I reckon five badgers, yeah, is probably these are chunky they're t- little they're things, really right? Tough. They're tough, right? But what I'm hoping for to get these numbers up is that the badgers arrive there look up and see the street line because they suspend the lanterns with just hundreds on thousands of red lanterns. Mm -hmm. And the badgers have a moment of philosophical awakening (laughs) that they never thought possible. So so they suddenly see the red? They suddenly suddenly just think, what am I? (laughs) (laughs) They suddenly understand that red lanterns exist Mm. and... You know, they're just, they're, it's like if you see, if you saw a unicorn, you know, it's like, I, I know the shape of a unicorn. Yeah, but it says here, they they have no, they have no reaction to red lanterns. Well, so so it's probably five then, isn't it? So you, so, yeah. it says, <laughs> it's probably just five badges. <laughs> their eyesight is monochromatic, has been shown by their complete lack of reaction to red lanterns. So you've just brought them to a place with loads of red lanterns for an animal that just shows no response to them whatsoever <laughs> and is therefore just purely focused. And it's just not even, it, it might look up, but it's just like, it's just like sort of looking through them. <laughs> Essentially, you've just dramatically reduced the amount of distraction by getting this very convoluted set that they're just going to pay no attention to whatsoever and has been shown in a study. Five badges. All right, we've got a question here from Linsbo on Instagram and she asks, with East around the corner, mm-hmm. worst animal to stand in for the Easter bunny? Oh... I don't want to eat frogspawn. Okay, but we don't eat rabbit eggs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what you think the Easter Bunny does. The jury has heard your counterpoint and would like to <laughs> stand out. 
Okay. All right. Well, in that case, then, we're talking about an animal that delivers an other animal's eggs, or are we saying this animal still just delivers chocolate eggs, but it just does them in a different way? I have absolutely no idea what the Easter Bunny is up to. Like, it doesn't do anything. What's the, what's the, is the, so when you go on an Easter egg hunt, it's the idea that the Easter Bunny has hidden those eggs. Santa, very, very clear what Santa does. Tooth Fairy, very, very clear what the Tooth Fairy does. What is the Easter Bunny's job? So, originating among German Lutherans, the Easter Hare originally played the role of a judge, evaluating whether children were good or disobedient in behaviour at the start of the season of Eastertide, similar to the naughty or nice list made by Santa. As part of the legend, the creature carried coloured eggs in its basket, as well as candy and sometimes toys, to the homes of children. As such, the Easter Bunny again shows similarities to Santa by bringing gifts to children on the night before a holiday. It feels like the origin of the Easter Bunny is they just plucked it out of nowhere. Well, it sounds like they they said, how, what else can we create to make children be good? Shit, Christmas is over and we don't have Santa anymore. Yeah. What about a, a giant hare? <laughs> and we just live in a Central European forest town. <laughs> what about a hare that's going to judge whether they've been good enough to have some coloured eggs? Okay, found the link. It's a fertility thing. Easter, spring, new life, rabbits, loads of babies. Mm. So we need a very horny animal. Right. <laughs> Here, we finally something we can get our teeth into. <laughs> okay, animals that proliferate. Rats. Pigeons. Barnacles. Barnacles. Big dick barnacles. <laughs> Relative to body size. The biggest penis in the animal kingdom. Yes. But does having an absolute weapon of a dick make you <laughs> the most horny animal? That's the question that all the listeners are thinking. <laughs> Just because you've got it doesn't mean you're going to use it. Jack, there's also... the uh, Yes, right. Point made. But there's... I was coming into this thinking more I bet barnacles are they something that has like one million eggs the molar molar doesn't the molar molar have like 8,000 eggs at once oh no idea the Easter sunfish <laughs> turtles turtles lay a lot of eggs okay <laughs> molar molars yeah which are for people who don't know they're also called sunfish they're that they're the huge they're the heaviest bony fish so they're absolutely massive they can be, I don't know, like four meters top to bottom, and they're they're the, they're the like round fish which just has a thin sort of fin coming right out the top and right out the bottom. But the <laughs> point is, is that a female molar molar will produce three hundred million eggs in a breeding season. Wow, three hundred million. Yeah, I knew there was something mad because I think they are. Of every, because the eggs are so small, as well as being the heaviest bony fish, there's something about them like as a vertebrate, they go from the smallest to the bit. Like the difference between the when they start and when they're done is the biggest wow. uh, variation expanse. But in- I imagine it's a it's a very turtle situation. In the vast majority of those eggs end up in the belly of a predator oh well, or the, we would be yeah yeah i certainly hope so <laughs> otherwise we're going to be knee deep in sunfish by fucking thursday <laughs> okay the easter molar molar yeah very good yeah fungal spores the easter mushroom the east all hail the easter toadstool yeah. 
Um, so yeah, we're thinking about things that create a lot yeah. of so crabs when they carry it around in their carapace. And it's because the Easter bunny's uh, always done with like a little kind of like basket. With so the, they carry it. With yeah. the eggs in it. So, okay, that's one point for the crabs, nil point for the sunfish. Easter Island crabs. Easter Island crabs. Yes. Mm. I've got nothing further. Surely you've cracked it. How did it take us this long to remember there's an island called Easter Island? We should be looking there. What else do they have on Easter Island? Let's find out. They've got the deep-dwelling moray eel. I don't think that's going to make the cut. (laughs) It's not going to be great on a children's Easter egg, is it? Yeah, they've got Randall's frogfish. Oh, Easter Island. I was thinking of Christmas Island. That's Christ- the one with the crabs. Yeah, but doesn't Easter Island have... Surely Easter Island's got some crabs on it. Well, probably, but I was picturing the, the Christmas Island cr- with the, yeah. the red crabs that march over the whole place. You've got your Christian Festival Islands mixed up. Haven't I just? There is a... Lobster, yep. endemic to Easter Island, yep. that's name, I am going to say, or hope, is pronounced Rappe Rappe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. But that's its name. I mean, we were asked, what is the worst animal to replace the Easter Bunny? And a lobster with that name is definitely up there. Very, very highly up there. <laughs> Carries its eggs around under its tail. Lives in the shores of Easter Island. Unfortunately named and probably wouldn't be picked up by Cadbury's marketing campaign. <laughs> okay, so in answer to the question, what is the worst? You are putting forward the Easter Island Rappe Rappe Lobster. Yeah. I have looked at the sunfish's distribution and I'm delighted to say you would probably find the Mola Mola on Easter Island or around Easter Yay. Island. Given that the question is, what is the worst? 300 million eggs and no way to carry them <laughs> <laughs> is putting it on my list. Hello, listeners. Just me popping up at the end to do that whole outro thing that we find ourselves doing together. You downloaded that free birder app yet? If not, why not? It's great whether you're a novice or a seasoned birding pro like your old pal Badams. Last week's episode had the biggest number of listeners we've had by a long way. So if you're new here, please do drop us a rating or review. It helps new people find the podcast. And don't forget, there's also buymeacoffee.com forward slash how many geese if you want to leave us a donation. We'll see you next Tuesday. <laughs>